Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Do you ever wish that that was how God answered our prayers? Yes to all, blank check. Yet if you're anything like me, our experience is often at the other extreme, where it feels like God maybe doesn't answer our prayers. I think if we're honest with ourselves, the feeling or the experience that God hasn't answered our prayers is honestly one of the biggest issues we have with praying, and maybe even our faith as a whole. We feel like we've tried it in the past and it didn't work. We've prayed the same thing over and over and over, yet saw nothing change. Anybody else experience this? My hand's up. Anybody get discouraged in their prayer life when walking through times like this? Yeah. This morning, we're going to continue our journey through our series on prayer, Uh, but I'm going to approach it from a different angle than we've been so far. I'm going to actually jump in headfirst into some of the tensions that we face with prayer. Because if I had to venture a guess, I would say that probably just about every one of us has had to wrestle with a question like, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why would I bother praying if it seems like God isn't even listening? Maybe you grew up in the church, but you walked away because you always heard, God works all things for our good. But your experience has felt like God doesn't hear you, or he doesn't answer you, or if he does, he must just not give a rip about you. If that's you, I wish I could fully convey to you how much God really does give a rip about you. That's the message of the gospel, that he cares so much about you personally, that he sacrificed his own son to set you free. God loves you far more than you could ever imagine. If you don't believe me, I hope you'll stick around with us for a few more weeks, and I believe that God is going to meet you here, and you will experience his goodness and his grace. God wants to hear from you. He wants to know you, okay? Yet, there's this tension where two things can be true at the same time. He always wants to hear from you. But there really are times where our suspicions are true, that God doesn't always answer our prayers. Throughout Scripture, we see it a variety of reasons that God would not answer our prayers. And this morning, we're going to dive into a few of them and see what they're all about. Interestingly, the first and primary reason that God doesn't answer our prayers actually has nothing to do with God. It's because we don't actually pray. This ties directly back to what Jonathan was saying last week. We were talking about the ask, seek, knock passage. And he posed the question of, why don't we ask more? Anybody remember the three reasons of why we don't ask more? (laughs) Gotcha. Pride, laziness and distraction, unbelief. I was going to give you a free cookie if you got one, but nobody got it. I guess I get the cookie now. You know that old Gretzky quote, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take? I feel like the prayer equivalent would be something like, 
You'll never get an answer for the prayers that you don't pray, except for Christine, apparently. (laughs) Jesus says it really plainly in James 4.2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. It'd be like if on my birthday, I'm thinking to myself, man, I would really like a new pair of shoes. I hope Brittany gets me a new pair of running shoes. But then my birthday rolls around, and guess what I'm not going to get for my birthday? A new pair of shoes. Because I never asked her for it. But imagine the audacity for me to go back to her and go, what the heck? Why didn't you get me the shoes I wanted? But that's exactly what we do to God time and time again. We don't have because we don't ask. But then we get at him for not coming through for us, for not answering our prayers that we never actually prayed to him. I'm going to quickly go through a few more reasons for our unoffered prayers. I think cultural, there's cultural reasons. We, we're Canadians. We're so polite. We're so kind, so reluctant to ask for help. I hate to bother you. I'm so sorry. Could you pass the salt and pepper? That cultural baggage, it often carries over into our prayer lives. Listen, you are never a bother to your heavenly father. Okay? That bears repeating. You are never a bother to your heavenly father. Maybe you grew up in a home where children were to be seen but not heard. That ain't our heavenly father. Jesus rebukes that attitude. He says, let the children come to me. Your father in heaven wants you to ask. You are never a bother to him. Second reason I think we don't ask is because our culture has adopted a worldview of naturalism. As Carl Sagan, a famous astronomer, said, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. So this worldview holds our reality in a box that's defined by matter, energy, space, and time. And the sciences are the only reliable way to know that reality. And so anything that we can't explain with science is thrown away. In this worldview, there's no room for the supernatural. Paul warned about this type of thinking. He said in Colossians 2.8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Look, I'm a science guy. I have a degree in science. My brain is wired to look for facts and evidence and the numbers behind things. But I'm also very well aware that there are many things that cannot be explained away by science. And without the power of prayer and God on our side, our churches just become little clubs that hang out on Sundays. At best, our ministry turns into social justice, which, don't get me wrong, social justice is a good and right thing. But when we do it only in the natural and not including the supernatural, we just end up dealing with symptoms rather than the root of the problems. Another reason we don't pray is because we give up on praying. Remember last week, Jonathan said, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. This isn't a once and done thing. But personally, I feel like this is maybe one of the hardest areas for me. We live in a fast-paced world. We have all the answers right at our fingertips. We get impatient if our video takes more than 0.4 seconds to load. When we pray, we want results. And when we don't see them, after the first time, we get discouraged and we stop asking. God has asked us to, p- to pray through or until 
the situation changes. There's this story in uh, Exodus chapter 17 where the nation of Israel is fighting in a battle. And basically, as long as Moses was praying, the Israelites were winning. But when Moses got tired and ceased praying, they started to lose ground in the battle. Or there's another passage in Isaiah 62. Take no rest, all you who pray to the Lord. Give the Lord no rest until he completes his work, until he makes Jerusalem the pride of the earth. Now, this passage is given during a specific context, but the principle remains the same. We are to give the Lord no rest from our, intercession, in our intercessions until, we, until his will is accomplished in that area. And I think the last reason that we don't pray is because, honestly, we don't really want to hear from God. If we're listening, God is going to speak to us. And sometimes he's going to ask us to do things that are uncomfortable, things that are costly. So rather than have to deal with what God is telling us to do, we just stay away from prayer in the first place so he can't ask us to do anything. All right, are you with me on all those? Okay. Second reason that God may not answer our prayers is that we have wrong motives or sinful behavior. You know the verse that we were talking about? You do not have because you do not ask. Well, let me give you it in a, a context surrounding, a bigger context surrounding that passage. Uh, James 4, it says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. See, the thing is, God knows our hearts. And so he knows our motivation in prayer. So does that mean that we can't ask for anything that is something that we would personally enjoy? No, that's not what I'm saying. Last week, Jonathan talked about the passage, even a evil father gives good gifts. So we know that God loves to give good things. He is a kind God. He loves to bless his children. No, the context of what James is talking about here, these wrong motives, is fighting, quarreling among believers. And this fighting is often motivated from selfish desires, from covetousness and jealousy. Let's be honest, this is pretty much the root of all fighting between all people even bigger scale, nations and kings. We don't get what we want, and we battle it out with one another. For those married or dating folks, anybody ever <clears throat> shared some hurtful words to get even? My hand's up again. So when you mix that in with your prayers, asking God to give you what you covet, particularly at the expense of another, God isn't going to answer that prayer. If you boil it down, coveting is essentially making an accusation against God, that he isn't good and that he doesn't know what he's doing. Right? That's what we're doing. We're saying somebody else has something we want, or their lives are more secure, or they aren't dealing with the health problems that we are. And we essentially point our finger at God and we go, you don't know what's good. You haven't done right by me. You are ruling and reigning in a way that is unfair. So you come to God and you're like, God, I've worked harder than him. I have stewarded my finances better than her. And I've been more faithful to you, to my family, to my job, to my church, 
God, I deserve what they have. God isn't going to answer that prayer. Look, I love my daughter, but parents, you know that there's times that kids can drive you up the wall, right? One of those things that drives me bonkers about my kid is when I ask her not to do something and she deliberately disobeys me. Anybody with me, parents? Come on. It's like Haven, please stop throwing your food on the floor. But that's exactly what we do to God. Number 10 on the Ten Commandments is simply, you shall not covet. God's like, please don't covet after your neighbor's stuff. And we're like, Heavenly Father above, please give me everything that they have. I can promise you that God is never going to answer our prayers when we've drenched them in wrong motives. And he's also not going to answer our prayers when we've drenched them in our sinful behavior. 1 Peter 3.10 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter starts out with this beautiful promise that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. See, again, God wants to hear from you. He loves to hear our prayers. But the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words... When there's sin in our lives, it displeases God, and those sins actually become a hindrance to our prayers. Psalm 66, King David says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 1 John 3, John says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, before you misunderstand what I'm saying, let me clarify. Because some of you are probably going, Awesome, thanks, Pastor. Um, I'm never going to be free of sin. So I guess I'm done with prayer, and uh, I'm out of here. Bye. Look, we do not need to be fully free from sin completely before God can be expected to answer our prayers. God is a loving, open-armed God who wants to use, sorry, who wants us to come to him in our brokenness, in our messiness, in our sin. So please don't mishear me. God is so serious about grace, but he is also so serious about personal holiness. If God only answered prayers of sinless people, then no one in the whole Bible except Jesus would have had their prayers answered. It is my belief, though, that any habitual and unrepentant sin may get in the way of our prayers. There's also specific sins that are highlighted throughout the scriptures that Uh, definitely prevent our prayers from being heard. We see one example in 1 Peter 3 when Peter says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Just means he can beat you in an arm wrestle, relax. As heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So we see here that husbands' mistreatment of their wives may cause God to withhold answers to their prayers until we repent of that and begin to treat them as we would. Man, that's a big deal. That's a big responsibility. Second, uh, let's read the latter half of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have, as, 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus wasn't referring here to the initial experience of forgiveness that we receive when we're justified in our faith. That one time making Jesus Lord of your life forgiveness. No, he's talking about the day-by-day relationship with God that we need to have restored when we've sinned and displeased him. When we don't forgive others, as God has already forgiven us, it displeases him. And when that happens, God tells us that he will distance himself from us until we forgive others. Again, a really big deal. Third one, James chapter 4 says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This goes back to what we were just talking about. Sometimes we ask God for things because we find our joy and fulfillment in them, even at the expense of other people. God may refuse to answer such sinful prayers. And the last one is because of disobedience to God. You know the story of Jonah? Jonah disobeys God. He literally tries to run away from God, which is hilarious. And then he gets eaten by a big fish and is disciplined for his disobedience. Well, after being in that fish's belly for three days, Jonah cries out a prayer of repentance for his disobedience and vows to make right what God has asked him to do. And what happened? God heard his prayer. He was delivered from his situation because he dealt with the disobedience in his heart that was putting a wedge between him and God. Okay? Next reason that God doesn't always answer our prayers is because of double-mindedness. James 1 Uh, verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. I think this passage has done a lot of damage to people, So we have to be careful as we uncover what James actually means by it. You know, I've heard many people who've been believing for healing or they've something, they've been believing for something. And when it doesn't happen, they're told, well, you just didn't have enough faith. Maybe if you had believed harder, you would have been healed. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, I've been told that. So first, we have to start where James starts. Back in verse 5, he points out the character of God, that God is abundantly gracious and good. He starts out by saying that God gives generously to all. The word gives is from the Greek word didontas. This word is a present active participle, which for you non-English majors like me, means that James is using this word to describe what God is like. So rather than reading it that God gives generously, we should read that God is a graciously giving kind of God. It's his nature. He can't be or do anything less than that. It's who he is. Okay, so then we move on. He, he gives generously to all, or we could say he gives liberally to all. He gives well beyond what we deserve, often beyond what we even ask for. He is a bountiful, liberal, extravagant giver. And then finally, this constant giving God who gives liberally to all, he does so without holding our failures and lack of wisdom against us. God is unwavering in his desire to always give his children good things. 
So it's with that context that we move into the belief part of the passage, you know, the part that messes people up. Because the reality is that when we experience the goodness and graciousness of God, who is constantly giving liberally to all without holding our faults against us, our proper human response is to believe. But I want to be really clear. I'm not talking about like the name it and claim it type of belief, where we just simply name what we want and then claim it in faith that it's been given to us. Let me show you why it's not that in this passage. Firstly, the context of this asking in the first place is that the believers are facing troubles and testing. And James isn't telling them to name and claim their freedom from the trial. No, he's actually calling them to rejoice in their trials because of the growth that happens through their suffering. Secondly, when they're in those trials, James counsels them to pray, but not to pray for deliverance from the trials. Again, he he challenges them to pray for wisdom to navigate through the trials. Wow. I don't know if you need to hear that, but I need to hear that this week. James is encouraging us to pray when we face trials. But our natural, my natural instinct is to pray, Jesus, would you set me free from this thing? Jesus, would you make a way for this person or that situation to come out of their trial? But no, James is saying, I know that you're walking through a brutally hard time right now. I want you to pray that God will give you wisdom of how to navigate what you're walking through. Also, if James was saying that we need to have faith enough to name it and claim it, then such a faith would really only amount to a faith in the power of our own believing. You know what I mean? Like, if, if we only believed harder, then we would be set free. Again, it's damaged so many people. The problem with this is that that kind of faith is really faith in ourselves. But James is clearly not talking about that. He's talking about faith in the good, graciously giving kind of God that we've already talked about, not ourselves. So what is the person praying supposed to believe? That God, in his graciously giving nature, will indeed give the wisdom required to navigate through the trial. And when we doubt in his graciously giving nature, that's where the double-mindedness comes in at the end of the passage. This theme is echoed throughout the scriptures. We see in 2 Kings chapter 17, they worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. Or Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both money and God. Simply put, the double-minded person is serving God and serving other gods simultaneously. Their heart is not fully given up to God. They just use God as their last resort to get what they want to be rescued from their troubles. They want what God can offer, but they don't really care to have God. They want the gift, but not the giver. And Jesus warns, such a man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. I don't know about you, and I kind of hate to admit it, but I catch myself here all the time. Something changes in my financial situation, and the first thing I do is pull out a calculator or my spreadsheet and start doing math of how we're going to make this work. And I spend the entire day in my head, overthinking it all. And then the day has gone by, and I go and I look back, and I'm like, well, crap. I haven't invited God into the situation at all. 
I spend all day trying to solve my own problems and never once thought about giving it up to God, the generous, giving kind of God who wants to give me wisdom to navigate my situations. I bet some of you can relate, whether it's in our sicknesses, in our relationship breakdowns, in our job issues. God ends up being our last resort. We beg him to help us when we need him, but otherwise we kind of want him to leave us alone. We become a double-minded person, and God likely isn't going to answer prayers that are double-minded prayers. All right? Next reason that God doesn't always answer our prayers is that we pray contrary to God's will and glory. Remember last week, Jonathan talked about the boundaries where God loves to answer our prayers. They were, it must not dishonor God. It can't impede on his higher kingdom purposes or his will, basically. And it must not hurt us ultimately in the grand, grand scheme of things. In John 5, we read, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So if we pray within the boundaries that God has set out that he will answer us, that, then that, and then he'll hear us, then that means that the opposite is also true. If we pray outside of those boundaries, we shouldn't expect to hear an answer from him. It can be tricky to know exactly what God's will is in a situation. In those cases, we can ask God for his divine wisdom to lead us and pray the best way that we know that aligns with God's character and his word. I believe that God's grace for those kind of prayers is huge. The, God, I'm not sure what you're up to. The, God, I believe you're doing this thing, but I don't know. He has such grace for those prayers. But that's not the kind of prayer I'm talking about. I'm talking about the blatantly obvious praying against the will of God. Praying for things that will oppress others. Things that will make a God out of something else in your life. Prayers of hate or deceit. Prayers that will take you away from your call on your life as a disciple, as a father, as a mother. On and on. God is not going to answer a prayer that goes against the very core and nature of who he is. However, there are times when the people of God insist on something that God clearly does not want for them. And he chooses to hand them over. He, they're not taking a no for an answer. So in these cases, he may choose to answer their prayers. But in answering them, it actually brings judgment on themselves. And God answers it, trying to teach them a lesson through it. We see in Numbers 11, there's a group within the Israelite community that start whining to God about their food. God has been miraculously providing them manna from heaven every day, day after day, providing. But they're tired of it, and they start dreaming and whining and whining and whining about the food that they ate while they were slaves in Egypt. Slaves in Egypt. They want to go back to that. Well, God gets angry with their constant complaining and finally says to Moses, all right, the Lord heard you when you wailed. If only you had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you your meat and you will eat it. Sounds like they won, right? Their whining has softened God and bent his will in their direction, right? Wrong. Two verses later, you will not eat for just one day. You eat for, or two, or five, or 10, or 20, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? 
So then God sends a wind from the sea that brings in quail upon quail upon quail. And as they begin to eat, the Lord strikes them with a severe plague and they died. Looks like they didn't bend the will of God after all. That's a pretty serious example of what happens if we whine and complain to God over and over about something that's against his will. Let me give you a little personal example that you could probably relate to. Again, my daughter, perfect sermon illustration. Um, She hates wearing shoes and socks. I mean, she comes by honestly, but if you're a parent, you know that trying to get your kid out the door in the middle of winter takes like 17 minutes with the coats and the pants and the hats and the mitts, and I can't even imagine having like three kids. Anyways, when we finally get into the car, it takes her literally the five seconds it takes me to walk around to my seat, and she's already kicked off her boots and her socks. So we're trying to teach her to keep them on, you know, in case of emergency, in case I have to pull over, blah, blah, blah. Well, one day, we had enough. I had enough of her taking this never-ending battle of her taking her boots off. So I said, all right, take them off. Enjoy. And she thought it was great. I bet you she thought she won. She thought she had officially succeeded in her quest for bare feet. But if you know me, you know that I don't lose. So, no. (laughs) When we got home, we said, okay, you don't want to wear your boots? That's fine. Go ahead, you can walk to the door. So she takes one step out of the car, and I bet you can imagine what happened after that. But you know what? She hasn't taken her boots off since. God is the same way with us. He is so gracious and so patient with us in our grumbling, and he tries to protect us from what we don't know. By and large, he's just not going to answer our prayers when they're outside of his will. But there may come a time where he goes, All right, do it. And even that response from God is a response of grace to show us that he really does know the better way. That we need to choose to trust him and his will for our lives. All right, here's a reason that God may not answer. My bad. A reason that God may not answer our prayers that maybe we haven't thought of. Our self-indulgence. That's basically a fancy way of saying our love for money can impede our prayers. Biblically, God gives us wealth for several purposes and in this order. He gives us wealth to advance the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He gives us wealth to help and bless others. And he gives us wealth to enjoy. As we pursue God's interests and his children's interests, he will often shower us with gifts along the way. But again, Remember that the order matters. When we start using our wealth given to us by God to spoil ourselves without actually advancing the kingdom of God or caring for and blessing others, then we're actually out of step with the purposes for which he's created that wealth in the first place. And guess what? When we misuse God's gifts to us, it affects us. I'm going to show you what I mean through some biblical examples. Uh, It can cause us to wander from our faith, number one. First Timothy says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that's why Jesus said, it's very difficult for a rich man to get into heaven. Point number two, fruitfulness in the kingdom is often choked out. The one 
Uh, Matthew 13 says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorn is the man who hears the word. But the worries of his life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful. Third reason, wealth can breed contempt, arrogance, and exploitation of the poor. 1 Timothy 6 says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, which, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Or James 2 says, but have you insulted the poor? Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Reason number four, it causes people to place their trust in wealth rather than in God. This one is huge in my opinion. Back to the, going back to, um, sorry, when we, going back to when we go to God, for only what we need and not for a greater relationship. First Timothy 6 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Number five, many become self-indulgent, desiring to build for themselves a life of ease. You know the, the bigger barns parable? The guy has too much stuff, so he builds a bigger barn to hold everything so he can live the rest of his life in ease. And then the plot takes a twist and he dies that night. And then Jesus says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Okay, what's my point? My point is that God has clearly defined for us how we are supposed to handle the wealth that we've been given. And when we step outside of that design for that wealth, we can see that we quickly become people that we don't actually want to become. We, we wander from our faith. We become fruitless. We are arrogant and have contempt and exploit the poor. We trust our wealth over God, and we build a life of ease rather than service to God. Again, this really comes back to the previous reason that he doesn't answer our prayers. He's not going to answer us when we pray outside of his will and his glory. God has made his will for our wealth very clear. And so when we try to pray while living a me-focused, self-centered, indulgent life, He's going to say, I'm not answering that prayer until you get your priorities right. Your wealth is meant for his glory, first and foremost, not for you building your own little kingdom here for your own little glory. All right, next up on the list is that our inaction may limit how God would choose to answer our prayers. In Luke 19, we find that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is, his, is hidden from your eyes. Jesus was praying and lamenting that Jerusalem had not turned to him. But he didn't stop at praying for them. He did something about his lament. He preached and he shared the good news with them and he died for them. We see in the book of Acts that as a result of his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, thousands in the city came to faith. Prayer without action is just as defective as action without prayer. When we pray for someone or something, we should always ask Jesus what he would have us do in that situation. When we pray, there's a, sorry, there's a story in the Old Testament where the walls in the temple of Jerusalem had been destroyed during Israel's exile. And when the nation of Israel is released from this exile, Nehemiah, the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays for days over the state of his great city. 
So I think so many times we stop there, right? We're broken, we're hurting, we're distraught by something wrong in our world. We weep and we mourn and we pray, but we're not actually moved to do anything. Well, Nehemiah is. He prays that God would give him favor in going before the king of Persia to request to be able to go back to Jerusalem and do something about his lamenting. Nehemiah was willing to risk and give his life to be a part of the answer. And with that, the Lord answered his prayer, causing the king to ask Nehemiah, what's wrong? Why are you so sad? And then he grants Nehemiah his wish to go back to Jerusalem and to do something about the sad state of his city. And he rebuilds the wall. When we pray like Nehemiah, we should expect that God will give us wisdom or ideas about what we can do to be a part of the solution. All right, the last reason that God may not answer our prayers is actually more of a misunderstanding on our part. It's because a better answer masks the answers that we're looking for. Sometimes we think that if God's answer to our prayer doesn't match perfectly, then we conclude that he didn't actually answer. But let's play this out. Suppose you have a teenager who asks you for a bicycle. If you respond to him by giving him a car, did you match his request? No, you didn't. But would your teenager say that you answered his prayer? Yes, I think he would. You have given him immeasurably more than they could ask or imagine. But say your teenager asks you for a car, and you say, I will drive you around to apply for a job at a grocery store or a restaurant or something. I'll also drive you to work every day until you have saved enough money to buy a car. Did, you answer, did your answer match their request? Again, no, it didn't. Would your teenager say that your answer matched their request? I'm going to guess probably not this time. But in a year or two, when they are driving their own car, they'd probably be feeling pretty good about it. And how about 10 years, 20 years later, when they become successful and now look back and realize that his parents actually gave him a better gift than what he had asked for. You've given your, ch your child the ability to not only get a car, but also a house and other good things. You didn't just give your teen a fish, you taught him how to fish, as they say. So much better. Remember last week, Jonathan talked about Paul and the thorn in the flesh. You guys can come up, sorry. Um, this is the same thing. Paul asked, please give me relief from my thorn so I'm not uncomfortable. But Jesus responded, actually, I'll give you my grace instead so you don't lose your reward. See, to say that God is not answering our prayers unless he matches our short-sighted requests completely misses the matchless wisdom, power, and love of God as he works all things for good to those who love him. As we sing this final song together, I want to encourage you to do some hard work. Can you identify with any of these seven reasons that we went through uh, this morning in your life? Maybe all of them? Remember, God wants to answer our prayers. So I'm encouraging you, repent of the reason that may be hindering your prayers. Invite the Lord to change your heart. We've got reason number one, we don't actually pray. Number two, we've got wrong motives or in sinful behavior that's in the way. We've got double-mindedness. We pray contrary to God's will and his glory. 
our self-indulgence gets in the way. Our inaction gets in the way. Or sometimes we've missed out on a better answer because we're looking for something smaller. You can cry out to him in the song, Lord, I need you. Without you, I get in the way of my own prayers. Lord, I need you. Help me to get out of the way of myself so that I can truly experience you and see you move through my prayers. Remember, God desperately wants to answer your prayers. Invite him to help you remove the barriers that are getting in the way.